everyone. Welcome to the Tulsa World Opinion Podcast, video podcast, I guess I should say. I'm Jenny Graham, Editorials Editor with the Tulsa World. I'm Bob Bissett, Editorial Writer and Columnist. And we're going to kick it off with Bob's column for this week, which is the withdrawal of Afghanistan, which was a year ago. I think it was a year ago last week, and a lot of our lawmakers had many things to say about that. And call, and they're calling for <clears throat> hearings because Congress can't have enough hearings. So, <laughs> but, but I mean, in this, I mean, I started thinking, because obviously it was bad. I mean, it was, the look was bad. There were Marines that were killed at the last, those last days. And you sort of re-look at that. Mm-hmm. What, what did you, what was your takeaway going back a year later and sort of re-examining your thoughts on how that went? Well, I remember when, I mean, it was kind of shocking how quickly the Afghan government just folded. And my initial takeaway from that was like, well, I mean, you don't have the support of the people because you're corrupt. And as it stood, it was never going to work anyway. I mean, it's just how fast things collapsed. But then when you actually saw it unfold, um, <clears throat> I wrote this, other people have written this, said this, broadcast this, but it definitely was the low point of the Biden presidency was last August. Um, just because they had a fundamental misunderstanding of the situation on the ground. And just like you said, there were some bad visuals with that, but those bad visuals are reflections of policy decisions, not just made um, within the past, you know, within the year before the withdrawal, but going a long ways back. So I find myself sympathetic to what uh, I I mentioned, uh, uh, Congressman Tom Cole, Mm -hmm. saying that he wanted to have some hearings and some accountability on this. And I, I agree with you that that whole scene was humiliating and frustrating and angering to me uh, you know watching taliban tooling around in humvees wearing our gear you know that was that was rough to watch and then of course like you mentioned the the suicide bombing at the airport and uh desperate afghans trying to get on board a plane and it had a lot of echoes of 1975 in saigon except much more people trying to get out at the same time but there was a lot of things that we did in the years running up to that withdrawal that kind of set us up for failure so if we're going to look at what the biden administration did or did not do right and my goodness, they've got some things to to answer for. We got to go back further than that. I mean, four presidents tried to get out of Afghanistan. Three of them didn't get it done. One of them, uh, Donald Trump, set us on a path to actually get out by a, a certain time. And when Biden got there, it was pretty much, you know, he had to execute that. But what a we, we got a lot to learn about that whole situation because that's war started out as something that most of the world, as well as most of the country thought, yes, we had to get this done. We, we cannot let this regime become a safe harbor for people like Al Qaeda. 
something must be done, but we lost our way. And it just turned into this cascading line of policy failures that led us to last August. And now look where the country is. Look where, and I'm being a country, I mean, well, look where Afghanistan is. It's right, I mean, it went too. right back to where it was. But here's, Pretty here's much. what, and I, and I agree with you that, that hearings are, could really illuminate what happened, could really answer some questions. My concern is that it's just going to be this partisan kind of hack job where exactly. we're going to have hearings with the end goal of a gotcha. And, and that both sides do it. And so to yeah. me, if you go into it with, we genuinely want to know in the lead up, like what did, what in each presidency, where did they screw up? And then at the end, and you mentioned Saigon, and, I, and I've wondered, has there ever been in the history of, of wars, has it ever been done without the chaos? I mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, I don't know if we had hearings after, you know, Vietnam, to see why why were we why did we have people hanging off the helicopters when we were leaving you know Saigon? Has there ever been a way of of a country trying to remove itself from an active war in a non chaotic way? And I genuinely don't know the answer to that. So if if we did it horribly, what could have done better? And has it ever has there ever been an example of where that's been done better? I can think of a couple things. Um, as I was reading through this. So there wasn't so much of a Vietnam post-mortem, but starting in the late 60s, and it went on for a little while, were the Fulbright hearings on Vietnam. And these were televised. Um, at least one, sometimes two of the networks were carrying these hearings live. And this is where people, the American people, finally got to see real hard questions being asked about Vietnam uh, people being called in front of congressional congressional committee to answer those questions and really discuss what was actually going on in that country. And that opened a lot of eyes, I think, to many Americans at that time. Now, they eventually ended, and we didn't really get that Vietnam postmortem that, you know, Mr. Cole was looking for with Afghanistan. But another... Uh, event in history that we would look at that could be something kind of like that was the 9-11 Commission. So that was more of a singular event, but it was looking at things as to what led up to 9-11. It was a very serious attack on American soil. We haven't had anything like that in, you know, since, you know, the early parts of our country in terms of a foreign actor attacking us and killing Americans on our own soil. So, and that was, I think most people would tell you that the 9-11 Commission did it right in that it wasn't going to be a political hack job. It was going to be a serious inquiry with serious recommendations, you know, transparent, get the facts out there. If people want to do that for the war effort of Afghanistan, I could stand, I could get behind that. If it's just turning into some of the stuff that we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years, um, I don't know about that. That doesn't, I don't think that would do us. Well, you, you think after 9-11, what was different? The, the country was more unified. We all, I mean, we had, you know, Republicans and Democrats on the Capitol steps, you know, holding hand in hand. You know, it's, yeah. we have, I, 
we have a whole generation of people that have never seen that before. And that's what's sad is that, you know, when you think of congressional hearings, as I was sort of joking, I just think of, you know, Ted Cruz pulling his antics. I think of, you know, AOC pulling her antics. I mean, it's just both sides have these extremists on them in Congress that it doesn't really get the work done where we can find, find some real answers that don't have some sort of, um, and that, and that would be my only caveat that, that if, if those hearings could be held where they're serious and, and within the scope of, you know, they don't get so unwieldy. And so, you know, because I don't, I hope we never end up in a, in a situation like that again, but we Mm -hmm. might, but we should know like, okay, what could we have done better? Where, where were the missteps and how did it go on this long? You know, it's just, I think everybody at the end was sort of in agreement that the war had, we had to get out of this. It just, and that the fact that the country and Afghanistan is back to what it was shows that it really, it, it was their leadership, their citizens who the changes were not being made that people didn't have any more faith in the government that was there when we, when the Americans were there than before. So unlike you look at, Ukraine and their citizens are fighting. I mean, they are on the front yeah. lines. You can see the difference in the citizenry and and how they view democracy and what they want democracy to be. So we have it's an existential threat for Ukraine. You know, they yeah. are literally being threatened on television by Russians with annihilation. Mm-hmm. You know, basically wipe them out and replace them with Russians. With the Afghans, it was the thing where they've been under so many different. Yeah, horrible styles of leadership over the years that the Taliban, by the time they took over, were kind of welcomed in a lot of circles. Is like, well, at least we don't have to deal with this. It does seem like we just have warlord after warlord after, you know, or religious zealot after religious zealot or both that maybe there, I mean, there is just a, a, Maybe a, a different view of what I, I don't know, but well, the shame of it is, certainly those are questions that could that could be answered or brought yeah, up. The shame of it is, is we actually did build something that was good in Kabul. Life in the capital city of Afghanistan was actually pretty modern. Lots of opportunities, uh, culturally, educationally, economically. All of that's gone. It's all wiped out. So a lot of the gains that we made. I mean, the things that we can say. Osama bin Laden is dead. Ayman al-Zawahiri is dead. And we haven't been attacked on our soil since 9-11 like that. But that's it. All the progress that we hope to make in Afghanistan and the region is gone. Because it's just like you said, Afghanistan is pretty much right back where we were in 2001. Right. Yeah. So, um, And so it was a really good piece you wrote. I hope everyone reads it. And then I got really into the policy and, and, and got really wonkish in my uh, look at college loans. I'm actually, I was joking to the people listening to this. I'm going to re- reread because you'll see that uh, I like policy and sometimes it's very boring and I need to go back and, and uh, relook at that. But I, in this college loan thing, everyone has a, a strong opinion and it's usually based in their own experience a personal responsibility. I did it. You should do it. You knew, you should know the terms. Mm-hmm. You did this. Then you have other people that are basing it more on, you know, the virtue of forgiveness. And I wanted to get past that and think, what really has happened? What are the actual um, numbers and figures? 
And I went down all these rabbit holes and there's a lot of, of data, but I found a, a, a guest essay from a Harvard economist and she's been, she spent her career, she's a public policy analyst, looking at just college loans. And there were a few points in her essay that, that intrigued me and took me in a different direction. And um, I usually don't quote other, you know, essays, but she, this was so good. And what she basically said, the essay was about how she went from opposing loan forgiveness programs because she felt they were kind of these crude tools that didn't do much into now supporting them based on new information that's come out in the last 10 years. <clears throat> and I didn't quite understand that, that 10, it was during the Obama administration that more information showing the type of borrower to the amount of money being lent was they could link that up a little better before all of the college loan information was based on graduates and they were averages and it appeared that the amount of loan to the kind of job it looked the ratio seemed right now what they're finding are a lot of the the borrowers these the ones who are going into default the most are less than $10,000 and they're borrowers that go to trade schools. People, this meme that goes around, like why does my plumber have to pay for your medical degree? That's not the reality. The reality is the plumber is the one under um, the debt and the, 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 the ones with you know doctors and lawyers, high-end lawyers, they're doing fine. So it's, and it's also dropouts. So if you go to school for a couple of years and you take out $30,000 of loans, you still have to pay that back and you don't have the benefit of a college degree to get the higher pay. Yeah. So they're finding it. And, and who drops out more? Um, low-income people from low-income families, first-generation college goers and black and um, Hispanic or in, in, yeah, and in indigenous students. So looking, when you get into those weeds, then you're like, oh, okay. Then you start looking at the loan structures the in the they were sold these loans are sold several times from to different companies to service there have been a lot of problems with interest rates changing yeah. paperwork being mis, mis mismanaged borrowers who would have qualified for loan reductions or forgiveness programs weren't told so there were all kinds of problems with that and and not to mention just the incredible rise in college tuition which who approves that? The government, your, your regions, yeah. your state, our le state legislature has not, I mean, Oklahoma was number three in the amount of reductions we made in our higher ed program. So that's, those are the reasons she sort of laid out. And I kind of went down that. And um, that's not to say that this, this doesn't address some real fundamental problems that Joe Biden's I, program will help those borrowers with low amounts, but we do, it doesn't address that the states have got to, we've got to do something about the runaway costs. We've yeah. got to do something about the predatory lending structures, that kind of thing. So, so that's, that, that was my, my uh, week that I spent, but, <laughs> but when it comes to, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about this. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you talk about it, you talk about it in terms of, of you, right? Yeah. You think, how did, how did I get through it? It's different for us than it is for those of us who are a little older now than it is for student borrowers now. And I, I cannot emphasize enough how much with 
baby boomers who went to college, gen most Gen X that went to college until a little later on, some of the younger Gen X, it's not quite the same. But let me just throw this out there, okay? So I went to a school that cost about $5,600 a year at the time, which is incredibly cheap by today's standards. But it was a lot then. That was, that was you and I went to school pricey the back then. Yeah, that's probably about 45% more than it would have cost to go to OU or Oklahoma yeah. State at that time. That summer, I worked a job. I made about $3,000. I had uh, probably somewhere around $2,000 worth of scholarships. And the rest of my folks were able to pick up. You go now, and you're talking about going to a public university, a public state university, like one of our flagship schools, and you might be shelling out 20 or 30 grand. There's oh, at no, least. Yeah, there's at no a minimum, I went back at a minimum to send your kid to OU or OSU right now, everything. It's a minimum of $31,000. Now, there is no kid out there that's getting a summer job who's making 30 grand. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. They're make, if they're working through stuff, like I worked all the way through college, I worked summers and I worked on campus, but it were minimum wage jobs. They helped, but the minimum wage back then was about half what it is now. Obviously that whole scale of economy changes. So upon graduation, uh, my wife still had a couple of years of school. I was able to get through all of my college without taking loans, but she still had two years left and that was on us. So we spent about a little over $10,000 worth of student loans and we paid it off in five years because the loan structure was such that you could pay it off like a cheap car. You can't do that now. The interest rates are higher, the amounts are higher and the financial power of new graduates is not keeping pace with the costs. So then you end up in a situation where you've got people that are paying on their student loans in a way, in a, in a speed that you see people paying off 30-year mortgages. Mm-hmm. Guess what? If you're already throwing down money that like it's a mortgage, guess what you don't get to do? You don't get to take an actual mortgage. Right. <laughs> so. Right. It's. Yeah. It's, exactly. it's and, there, totally and there's a lot. Now. Yeah, and and there's this argument that it'll worsen inflation right now, which it could, um, but we've had a two-year moratorium um, on payments, so a lot of people who would be forgiven haven't been paying anyway. So it's really unclear among economists how much that would really worsen inflation, but but in, in the end, I'm not sure, you know, keeping keeping borrowers in dire straits on what has been a, a public policy failure is a failure on the government for, for getting a hold of this. I don't think that's how we should leverage the, the you know, the economy in that way. I mean, no. one of the good things about this is that it's really put a focus on who has gotten loan forgiveness from the federal government, who <laughs> yeah. has been, I mean, we have bailed out everyone from banks to airlines. We've got members of Congress, two from Oklahoma that have gotten millions in federal money forgiven. So, yes. you know, the top 1% have, have always benefited from these kinds of forgiveness, you know, bail us out programs with a trickle down idea, right? Yeah. So this is, an, this is a program that gives money directly to the frontline workers. And people are, are really mad saying, well, well, that's not fair. Well, 
I, I, I disagree now, having read more into it. That... Absolutely. Oh, well, let's, let's be real about this, okay? So with this loan forgiveness, you know, mm -hmm. it's going to add to the national debt. So mm -hmm. that's going to be something that we're on the hook for. Okay. But guess what else has been add added to the debt? You know, PPP added to the debt, the bailouts of, uh, of not Everything. Ford, but GM and uh, Chrysler back during the Great Recession, all the banks that were about ready to go under, some of the insurers that are about ready to go under. We got that. We're on the hook for that. All of these tax cuts that have mostly benefited the wealthy, those the corporate income tax cuts that we saw in the last administration, that's all going on the books in the red. That's all debt. We're also on the hook for that. So, I mean, let's, people are saying this is apples and oranges, but really, there's been a lot of people that have been living off of uh, policy gifts, expensive policy gifts right. that are not any more earned than what a lot of people struggling to pay off these loans are getting right now. So right. If, if we want to complain about that, let's be real and let's be honest about responsibility, accountability, and things like that. And in terms of like the higher ed thing, and you get into this into your column, we need to start checking out the whole higher ed system and why it is the way it is. You know, state funding, the size of administrative bloat within a lot of university systems, and how all of that's been passed on to the people who are least able to afford it, students. Right. And, and in Oklahoma, we have 25 public colleges and universities. And we really need to ask, why? Do we need them all? And if we do, I mean, we have a lot of duplication of degree programs. That create, I mean, that do we need that? There are a lot of things within colleges that have never, I, I question the effect, the efficiency within colleges. Mm -hmm. Because where, when our state legislature cut pre-K through 12, through elementary and secondary ed, they, they can't pass that on, right? So the colleges, if they get cut, they can keep everything and just pass that on to students and you just keep raising tuition. So, so I think there has to be a, a real conversation that people won't like to have, but needs to have. So, so it's, it's, it's a big, like I said, it, it's a big issue that doesn't really translate well into the social media no, world. No, no, no. So that's where I wanted to get past and get a little bit more in depth and, and hopefully people, People will will think a little bit more. Mm -hmm. The uh, there are a couple. We of course we write editorials every day, mm -hmm. and there are a couple that that stood out. That one's coming out Sunday on the Tulsa city of Tulsa's homelessness. There are a couple of ordinances the city's been uh, talking about, and it has to do with people who are homeless and set up in on like public sidewalks, right of ways, things like that, to be able to for the police to ask them to move. And they get a warning, then they get fined. And with that, they could be arrested. And so Councilor Lori Decker-Wright wants to take the arrest off the table, which is a good thing. You don't want to, because they're, you know, you don't want to, once a person's involved in the criminal justice system, there are all kinds of issues. And so there was some debate over that. Councilor Krista Patrick, I thought had a pretty good idea. She's yeah. trying to find middle ground. And she says, why don't we have a step in between there? If the, instead of having just, we don't arrest them or arrest them. Why can't we have something like the sobering center, which was the uh, Tulsa's answer to instead of arresting people on 
public drunk and putting them in jail and starting that whole thing, if someone's public drunk or inebriated something, we can take them to a sobering center where they basically sober up. We have people there. They can get resources if they have addiction problems, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Why can't we have something like that for homelessness? Pretty good idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Bob, I mean, we, <laughs> you and I have sat through all these meetings talking about homelessness. Yeah. But I think the city is almost sort of now they're going to a working group, which to me is their answer of we can't really come to an agreement. We're going to buy some time. We're going to come up with a working group. It's like sending something to committee. Yeah, um, I hope they're not kicking the can down the road on this. I hope not. It's difficult. I know the situation is difficult, but it is good to see that we're having some important discussions being had. So I, I, I know and understand why we don't want to criminalize homelessness. I also understand the police department's take in that, you know, hey, first time we confront someone, we just give them a warning. And then the next time, at least we have some options yeah. of, you know, fines or whatever and possible jail time. And on the, on the flip side, just like you said, I mean, if you get a criminal record, your possibility of a homeless person's possibility of getting into public housing is gone. So I really liked the idea that Krista Patrick had because it was, like you said, it's middle ground. It's, and there's some possibilities there too, because when you're talking about programming and stuff like that, now we're in a situation where we're not just like meeting someone on the street with like a cop and a social worker and trying to talk them down from being, you know, unwieldy in public or whatever. Now you have an interface with them that could actually get them the kind of programming that might help them or steer them in a direction where they can get out of the situation that they're in. Mm -hmm. So I hope that's part of the mix in this working group and i know that they want to probably go even deeper than that look at systemic issues that are causing homelessness and i appreciate that i hope these ideas are also talked about because i know that a lot of people who live work own businesses in downtown and in some of the big retail and commercial areas of the city where they're having problems i mean they their issues got to be dealt with too right i mean having someone on a sidewalk is not good we, that's not safe for them. It's not safe for people around them. It's so I back that ordinance. Yeah. It's just how do you implement it? And then, yeah, the bigger question how do we, what, and maybe the, the, the question that is not real clear is what's the city's goal? To me, I always thought the city's goal was to reduce homelessness. Yeah. So if that's, but maybe city councilors are viewing it differently with this ordinance. What's the goal with the ordinance? So maybe we're thinking too big on that. Maybe not. So, um, but that that was one of the editorials we we of the week. And the other one was kind of backing TPS. Um, yeah. The thing that got me when TPS and Mustang went before the Kangaroo Court of, is the Board of Education. I don't know if that's the right word. I have other words, but we'll go with that. Um, the one thing that struck me was when Mustang schools went up there, their, their mayor was there saying, this is not, the city disagrees with you. You're wrong as a mayor. Um, and then when the board, of course, predictably doubled down and didn't change their uh, accreditation ruling based on this House Bill 1775, um, two conservative lawmakers came out blasting the board for it, saying, hey, this isn't right. This isn't what we intended. This is unfair. 
Now, granted, these lawmakers voted for the, the law that never should have been passed, but it showed me how TPS is alone. Like they, I, I don't understand when, when you have state officials that have clearly targeted your local school district for political reasons that harms your other efforts in the city, particularly economic development. Yeah. And yet there's silence. So, I mean, yeah. what were your thoughts on that? Oh boy. So I think very genuinely the people who voted for this, who are probably from the suburban and, and rural areas of the state, never thought that 1775 was going to come back and bite them in the butt. And then it did. Now, I give credit to the lawmakers and the mayor of Mustang coming out and saying, hey, you know, this isn't fair. You guys didn't really weigh this. I give them credit for that. I wonder, had it not been TPS, but say Jenks Public Schools or Owasso or not, let's not time you say that. Let's say like suburban districts within the city of Tulsa itself. So we're talking about Union and Jenks mostly. What would happen if one of them got cited? What if it would have been jinxed? Would we have had some legislative action? You know, people, lawmakers that represent that area of the city come out and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, or with union. Where are these people with Tulsa? That's, and let's be very clear. Question. I am talking moderate Republicans. The Republicans are the dominant in the state. The Republicans are the ones who passed this law. A lot of Republicans sit on school boards around here. I mean, it's... Yeah. I mean, most of the people in, in public life are Republicans, and in Tulsa, they are silent right now. And if they think that is not hurting their other efforts to make improvements in the city, they're fooling themselves. And, you know, you have some of the, the, the Democrats you would expect, like John Waldron, to speak out against it. And, and of course, the, right. but the school board's out there alone. And TPS, it was egregious what happened to them. Because yeah. what, I mean, they were downgraded for something that literally didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the attorney got up and said, oh, the this training that this teacher complained about, the materials were fine, but the discussion wasn't. Then when we got the audio, thank you, Tulsa World's Lindsay Crable Burton, found, no, the discussion just read what the materials were. Yeah. It was so totally what that attorney that. presented and the board never reviewed the evidence he referred to. There's no appeals. And so Tulsa... <laughs> literally didn't do anything and they still got downgraded and crickets and I, I'm very frustrated by that because I don't feel it's fair to the district I don't think the city the city is going to continue to be harmed by this you know you want to talk yeah. about tracking business you want to talk about growing a business I'm going to make a challenge here because I think obviously there's going to be some members of the city council who are going to may or may not be more willing to say something about this. And they're going to represent areas of the district that are going to not be politically in step with where the legislature is or where um, the state school board is right now, for that matter. But there are others who I think if they said something, it might give more weight. And <clears throat> first and foremost among those, I would have to be thinking would be the mayor. This directly affects the city of Tulsa, and he is the, the biggest cheese on the block here. I know it might be risky politically 
and he may have issues with the direction that TPS is going. He may have issues with the superintendent. But what happened in that board meeting was wrong. It was it was a trumped up thing that was easily proven to be false. And the state school board smacked Tulsa Public Schools anyway. Where where are my people at here? We've got to be able to call this out and say, listen, this is is this the direction that we're going here, where it's just going to be this arbitrary punishment of school districts and educators just because? You brought up a good point, which is you don't have to like the superintendent or like everything going on in the district. You're not. I don't. You don't. I mean. It's, it's, a, it's an agency. There are things you like, things you don't like, but that doesn't mean you let an injustice go by. It doesn't mean that you let, you know, this concerted effort hurt your, your city and your efforts. Yes. I mean, you, we can, but what I hear out of people who aren't from TPS is what they hear. They don't know what's going on in TPS. They don't, they're inferring things. They, they aren't talking to the teachers and the students and the parents and and we can disagree with the administration in some of the decisions, but we can't let this, what's been happening, continue. It's just not fair, and it's really harmful to the city. So that was the other editorial that that kind of got us going. But one thing we haven't written on, I know that the news has sort of touched on, which is the, the education secretary's uh, latest position, which is a little uh, concerning. There was a... For readers who, who who may not be familiar, there was a Norman teacher who resigned, not fired, resigned after she was suspended for possibly violating the House Bill 1775 after she shared a QR code with her students that would link them to the Brooklyn Library. Mm-hmm. So the Brooklyn Public Library is making its uh, collection available to anyone in the nation. And that includes, you know, these random lists of banned and censored books which frankly, Brooklyn Library is not alone. Brooklyn Library does not have pornography. That's on another part of the internet that kids can get to a lot easier than using a QR code, signing up for a card, looking through a card catalog, and blah, blah, blah. It's a library. So Ryan Walters wants to have her teaching credentials pulled for, quote, sexualizing her classroom. Mm. I really don't think sharing a public library's link is sexualizing the library or sexualizing your classroom. No. But more importantly, it's this idea of using teacher licensing as as a weapon because the teachers that had their license pulled in the past have been convicted of crimes. That's usually why you lose a teaching license. Yeah, that's that's really it. You've been you cannot teach in our classroom because you are now a convicted felon of whatever. You're a danger to our children. Right. Now we're moving into I'm going to pull your license because I don't like your politics. I don't like the resources or the class, the, the, the books you have in your classroom. Is that I just, is that really where we're going with this? I mean, I just, I don't know. He was on a video that I saw today where he said just that. He said that, you know, if 
a teacher or an administrator gets their certificate pulled, they cannot be working in the schools anymore. And he says, as a state superintendent, I can do that. I can pull those things. You can. So that is a direct threat. And it tells me that we're no longer looking at someone's uh, fitness to be an educator by their experience and their education and their certifications. We are basically instituting a political test. And I might add too that the if it is a political test that has religious underpinnings, um, that's actually a violation of the Constitution because we can't have a, a religious test to serve in any kind of a government function. So I'll just throw that out there. Also, and this is something that just jumped out at me right away when I saw Mr. Walter's tweet, when he's talking about sexualizing the classroom, well, we're not gonna have it. That's a pretty much a way that he's accusing this former Norman teacher of doing that. One of these days, someone's gonna say that kind of stuff. They're gonna call someone a groomer or whatever. And they're going to find themselves in court for libel. Uh -huh. And I want to, you, you just can't do that to people. You can't make someone look like a criminal when they have not done anything. That's a crime. Yeah, she, she, she just shared a link. And yeah. I question that Norman never should have done anything anyway. I mean, you can share... The Brooklyn Library has the same materials most public libraries have. Um, but by that thinking, it's like any, if you give if someone who has internet access and a kid goes on the internet, are you grooming that kid because they could possibly get to, you know, a porn site, like actual porn site? I, I mean, that's in charge. You, know, huh? the, you, you, know, you get down these and you're splitting hair, the, the whole. I was just bothered by the pulling of a teaching credential for something that is so innocuous. And it comes down to, I didn't like that she shared that. And I'm going to, I'm going to have her not, I'm going to take away her career that she won't be able to teach here or anywhere else because she shared the, the link to a library that I don't like. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not a crime. Yeah. That's, it's, it's kind of a crazy deal because Again, 1775 has scared Norman administrators to the point where they felt they had to act. Right. So 1775 has had one teacher in Oklahoma City, I believe, decide not to have Killers of the Flower Moon as reading material for her students. Not that there's anything in that book that's bad or anything like that. It's just history but they're afraid of running afoul of this thing. And now you're looking at a situation where a candidate is saying, I'm going to use 1775 as a hammer to put anybody out of work that doesn't line up with how I think things should be. So I'm gonna say this again, and I think I said this about a month ago, House Bill 1775 needs to be rescinded. It, it does it need to be, be repealed. repealed. It's an it's a national embarrassment at this point, and it's in direct conflict with uh, AP classes, advanced placement classes. And we ran a, a guest op-ed on that of a person of a um, person in higher ed who compared 
you know, AP classes universally recognizes your top tier, um, gives college credit. It's it's actually harder than some of the, the college classes I've taken looking at the curriculum, but it tells teachers, you've got to lean into the controversies. Let kids explore these ideas in contemporary life. Talk about Black Lives Matter. Talk about, you know, MAGA Trump. You know, explore these ideas and these things and then, then add, you know, and you're, you're contextualizing things with history, with politics, with government. But that law, that state law says, nope, can't do that because it might make a kid feel uncomfortable. That's the clause in that particular law. That's mm-hmm. the problem. Right. The other ones about, you know, not trying to make someone feel guilty for something their race. For three or four generations or people shouldn't feel bad about right. their race or whatever, or their gender. That stuff's fairly innocuous. But that third clause that you're talking about, that someone might feel uncomfortable. That's the vagueness that allows this thing to be a sledgehammer to uh, enforce a type of political agenda in schools. Well, it is an ideology. And I'll tell you, in the end of the day, it doesn't make Oklahoma education better. It weakens it. It makes our kids not, not prepared for the type of world they're entering. They're entering a very diverse world, a very international world. And if we don't prepare them for that through these types of rigorous ways of critical thinking, then in the end, we're, we're not helping them and they're not helping Oklahoma. So um, so that was just the, the latest one. But we're going to end this on a good note because football yeah. starting. And I think, what was it you said to me about football the next few weeks? Oh, football is going to be the thing that's going to be the one thing that's going to make us actually feel good about life for the next few months, despite everything that's going on. I said, and that's why football was invented to get us through like election years <laughs> that in the end, because because nothing calms people down like football. Right. And I know I love attending the games that I've been going to, to my kids high school football games. It's very fun. Um, it's fun to know the kids, even when they get, you know, beat by 40 points or whatever. But uh, but I know I like my OU Sooners because, you know, alumni loyalty. Mm-hmm. I know that Aaron Rodgers gets on my nerves because if he just because he's a human being that gets on my nerves. Um, I don't know that much about the NFL. I know I like Baker Mayfield and we don't like Cleveland because they treated Baker very wrong, very, very wrong and chose the side of a guy who's a little creepy. I'm just going to say it. He's a little pervy. I'm not going to mention his name. And uh, that's the extent of my knowledge of, of football. I like the game. It's fun to watch. I like being a spectator. So, but now, where do you, you're like into football. Aren't you oh, in like yeah. fantasy leagues and like the whole? I used to do a lot of fantasy football, but it got to the point where I was paying so much attention to all these little trades and lineups and everything else in multiple leagues. And I just couldn't enjoy the games anymore. Oh, uh, so you got, yeah. Like, I want to be able to sit there on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, put the game on. I I told my wife this when the first preseason NFL game came on and I heard it, I was working, but I could hear it in the TV. And I was like, ah, (laughs) those are the towns of football play-by-play. I love it. It just puts me in that moment of zen. (laughs) So shout out to Russell Wilson, who just signed an extension to 
at least be with my Denver Broncos for the next seven years. He's saying multiple Super Bowls. I'm all for it. Bring back those Lombardis, baby. Let's go. See, my son is a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. So we watch a lot of we watch a lot of that in my house. So it's all good. They're gonna be very good again. I know they like I wish it was colder because football should be so cold where you have to have coffee and hot chocolate. So yeah. It does feel a little weird to be wearing, you know, shorts and a tank top at the first games. But, you know, it's Oklahoma. It'll, what are you, you going to do? Still going to go. What All right. Doing? Well, I hope everyone has a good weekend. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a good weekend. Absolutely. I will see you next week. Hood, hood. <laughs>